It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at, at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. First Contact with Lori Siegel is a production of Dot 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 Media and iHeartRadio. I talked to trolls and hackers who uh, made a living doing uh, disinformation and propaganda for hire. People who said, initially I joined because I wanted to do campaign messaging for, you know, for my candidate to win. And then I woke up and I was just sending rape threats to women journalists using fake accounts and wondered what, you know, what happened? What am I doing there? Who are the people who spread online disinformation? The so-called trolls that you hear about in the news whose jobs are to distort facts and create chaos. I want to introduce you to someone who knows them well, Camille Francois. She's a security researcher who spends a lot of her time in the darkest corners of the internet. Camille is the chief innovation officer at Graphica, which is a social media analytics firm hired by major companies to identify and fight online disinformation. To give you some context, her team was a big part of helping us uncover the extent of Russian influence during the 2016 election. And she knows a lot about trolls. Unlike most of the people talking about them and the damage they're causing, she actually spends a lot of her time talking directly to trolls to understand the why, who they are, and why they manipulate social media to distort the truth. I'm excited for you to get to know her. She's unsuspecting and quick to laugh, which I actually think is pretty powerful. To give you a sense, she just kind of roamed right into our production studio, a New York City high-rise with lots of security. No one stopped her. 
Yeah, well, no one asked me what I was doing there, so. So don't underestimate her. She's taking on one of the most extraordinary threats of our time. And it's her humanity that gives her an edge. I had no idea when I sat across from her at a New York dinner party that I would leave asking myself a question that I want to pose during this episode. What if the key to fighting disinformation online and some of the most alarming cyber threats coming in the future starts with empathy? I'm Lori Siegel, and this is First Contact. So welcome to First Contact. I'm super excited to have you here. I'm super excited to be here. I have to say, I love the name of the podcast. I'm a huge Star Trek fan, so First Contact speaks to me. Oh, I love it. I <laughs> yeah. love that. And, you know, um, well, first of all, I should do kind of a quick intro to you, and which will probably play into, like, why you like Star Trek, right? And just, like, your background <laughs> is really, really cool and interesting. Um, you've spent your whole career kind of at this intersection of cybersecurity, public policy, and human rights. Um, you've worked for the French government, advised governments um, on all sorts of policy issues. And then you were a principal researcher. I've seen at Jigsaw, worked at Google many times. Jigsaw, this is this think tank and technology incubator within Google. And now you're the chief innovation officer at Graphica, right? Is that? That's, that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, you've essentially spent your whole career digging into fascinating, interesting issues around cybersecurity and human rights. Yeah, I really lucked out. You know, when I went to school, I said, I think uh, this is what I want to do for a living. It's like the intersection of human rights and tech and geopolitics. And I think back then people were laughing, saying, that's not a job. Uh, I think I really lucked out being able to work on these issues for, mm -hmm. for so long. And so how we start with our first contact uh, is we talk about our first contact. <laughs> our first contact happened at a dinner party, right? Um, I guess we should say to our listeners, like we were at a dinner party where no one could talk about what they did, which is, I guess, this new concept of like, we're not defined by what we do, although what you do is just the coolest thing in the world. And it's so badass. Um, but we sat across from each other and everyone guessed. We were sitting around a table and everyone was like guessing what you did. Do you remember what people were saying? Yeah, it was really fun. So uh, for the dinner, I had uh, brought a, a bottle of natural wine, uh, biodynamic wine. And that's kind of the only thing that, that, you know, people knew about me. And so they were like, well, you obviously you work in the wine world. And I think I get that because I'm French. And then some people were like, no, she works in sustainability, which frankly is kind of true given what I actually do. I work on the sustainability of our conversations online. I don't think this is where they were going with it. But yeah, that's that's what they said. I don't know what, what you got. What did people say about you? I mean, there's this weird guy next to me that kept saying everyone was a dancer. Do you yeah, remember that's that? True. That was super weird. Um I thought you were doing something super specific. Uh, I'll come back to me. No, it, I think it, it, I thought you were a diplomat or something like that. Like I had something super specific for you. I will totally take that. And I'm forgetting what I said, but I think I, I said you like managed chaos or something. But it's also true. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> what people didn't really realize is like sitting around this small dinner table was like someone who's at the forefront of fighting disinformation in nation states and who works in the dark corners of the web and sees the craziest stuff ever. And I don't know if this is like the right thing to say because like I hate when dudes do this, but like 
you do seem really unsuspecting, right? Like, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) we were just joking about how you kind of social engineered your way into this building. Like we didn't come get you in time. And like you kind of like. No one asked me what I was doing there. So. (laughs) Right. You're like this. You come in with this like cute shirt that says facts and like no one questions you. You just have this like this ability to understand. And I I have I'm going to go somewhere with this. Um, (laughs) You have this uh, extraordinarily human quality about you. And I think that's what a lot of people picked up on at the dinner table. And I think that might be, if I could say anything, what is kind of your competitive edge when it comes to what you do for your day job? Yeah. You know, I think um, I think people don't realize that empathy today is a critical component of cybersecurity. A lot of people have thought in order to do cybersecurity right, you need to be really good at like managing tubes, breaking tubes, you know, managing networks. I think today we realize that if you want to secure systems, secure conversations, secure the way we live online, you really have to have an em- empathic heart and to understand the types of threats and how they evolve. It, like, So can we get really quick into, because I want to go back to your background, but just so people know, like, what is your day-to-day? Like, I just envisioned you in an office, like, fighting the troll farms online and making sure democracy isn't ruined. But I don't know what that actually looks like. So I know, I, it's so hard to I know big tech companies call on you to help with these different campaigns. And um, you've had some pretty high-profile reports that have helped us understand the extent of Russian influence. But, like, what does your day-to-day look like? Yeah. Well, you know, first, I don't do this by myself. I'm very lucky that I get to manage a really fantastic team. Yeah, people coming from like different types of background. And so together we analyze online conversations and we look for markers that they're being manipulated. Now, what's really fun in 2020 is, you know, we tend to think when conversations are manipulated, it's either trolls or bots or Russians. But today there's there's quite a big diversity of actors and ways in which people manipulate public conversations. Hmm. And so we investigate because we want to be able to have more people do that and to have a public that's better informed and better equipped to tackle these threats, we also build tools to make that easier. So we have an R&D lab. They just do scientific research on how can we better detect patterns of manipulation of online conversations. So like you can essentially see it coming, understand if people are being manipulated, understand kind of who's behind it and try to stop it. So I'm going to put it in in this way of how I love to look at the hacking community and security researchers. And I got really fascinated in the security community years ago. I went to Black Hat and DEF CON for the first time. And for our listeners, those are like hacker conferences in in Las Vegas. So if you could just imagine a bunch of like security researchers like who are finding vulnerabilities online and like in weird Vegas hotel room. I mean, it's just such a, a, an interesting community. And I remember my first exposure to it. I was like, whoa, these people are like these modern day superheroes, right? Like they have the ability to fight the bad guys online and they have this, this skill like they can, as we talk about social engineering and you being able to kind of walk in here and, and understand how computer systems work, like you could use this skill for bad or for good, right? Yeah. And so I remember going to Black Hat and DEF CON for the first time and everyone had code names. Yeah. Right. Do you? I mean, right. Like, is that a thing yeah, in, the, a in thing. your community? It's funny like, that you say that because last year I was at Black Hat with Bruce Schneier and Eva Galperin, and our panel was, "Please use your skills for good." I mean, like, 
back like six or seven, eight years ago, it was like, even when I started going to these hacker conferences, it was like, if you found a vulnerability or if you started saying, hey, this isn't good, you could get into trouble for saying it. You still can, yeah. Right? <laughs> and so, and there was something, um, there was something very anti-establishment about it and being that person who was fighting the bad guys and who was calling attention to this and who was kind of saying this. I mean, do you have a code name? <laughs> no, I have a. I mean, yes and no. It's not the greatest code name. I, I go by Chemtronics. Okay, so it's like, like yes, easy. Well, I mean, like it's it's <laughs> yeah. not the most secret code name. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of cool though. Yeah. What does it mean, Chemtronics? Yeah, like what's behind? What was behind it? Um, you know, I can't even remember. It's been with me for a little while. Ooh, it wow. followed me around. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> right. So, but there was, I, I guess, what I'm getting at is there was always the spirit of the community. Mm-hmm. That was had a lot of conviction and wanted to do something and raise awareness. And so now we're in this certain yeah. moment. And so I guess I'm curious about your background. Like before we get into like all the stuff you're doing to help um, fight kind of this this current moment in time, I'd be curious to know just like how did you get into all this? I'm just I'll answer that in a second. But I'm really interested in what you're saying about how this idea that initially was quite scary, right? Let's Mm -hmm. enable a bunch of kids to poke at the systems from the outside and find the holes in it. Yeah. Kind of became our best idea for how to do security in a complex world, right? Right. And I think what's really interesting is that model is going to apply to more and more questions. So I think a lot about biases and algorithm, right? Mm-hmm. So when machine learning makes decisions that are deeply racist or deeply sexist, right? And all those problems that we're seeing emerge and that frankly, we don't have a lot of solutions to, to tackle. Could the model of a bias bounty also be applied there, right? Hmm. How many more learnings can we draw from the hacker mindset and from the security community? How we do security in an age where we have more complex problem with technologies, right? I think there's a lot of innovation and promising areas to, to explore there. That's interesting. So tell me about how you got into this. Were you always kind of a free spirit? I mean, who answers no to that question? I Some guess I'm, people. I'm I mean, French, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, um, it, no, I, I, I don't know how I really got into this is the real mm-hmm. answer. I think I was always quite obsessed with technology. I grew up in France and very quickly I realized that the type of questions that I wanted to ask, I needed to, you know, to go to the U.S. to, to, to ask and to, to work on. But like, take me I back there. A, like, were you were you tinkering? Were you yeah, like playing on the internet? Were you in weird chat rooms? Okay, I'll tell like, you the truth. Yeah, I what, was what, a what very optimistic person, and I still am. You know, like my team, like often says I'm I'm the most optimistic person, looking at like the darkest stuff. Right. I was really excited by the promises of the internet. I really thought that the internet was going to bring democracy, was going to bring more diversity, was going to connect connect us to one another. I was I was just really excited about the promise of the internet. Perhaps Why? it's a generational thing. Was it just how and you were so, raised? Like, was it just you loved no, the spirit just, of it? Yeah, I loved the spirit of it. I loved it. I remember, you know, when my father got me my first computer, I just thought it was magic. And so I think the first, you know, projects that I worked on were just so extraordinarily optimistic. So I remember with a close friend of mine, we had this project called Citizen Wi-Fi. And we were knocking on doors around in Paris and we were asking people could you remove the password on your Wi-Fi 
so that everyone can connect to your Wi-Fi and we'll give you a little sticker that says citizen Wi-Fi. I mean, it's not remove the password. It's like create, you know, create a mm-hmm. guest network so that more people can access the Internet and you're part of the guest Wi-Fi community, which, you know, again, <laughs> was very extraordinarily optimistic idea of just like, let's put more people online and things are going to be great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think I really come from a background that looks at the Internet with very rosy, optimistic mm cheerful eyes I well I I still do after all the crazy stuff I see I still you know I still I still have hopes for what you know digital technologies can bring to society well I also saw you wanted to be a space baker which I don't even know what that what what on (laughs) earth does that mean because we're going to get into Russian influence and, and fighting the bad guys but I feel like we have to we have to start at some point with space baker you know like Neelix and Voyager or, you know, Quark on Deep Space Nine just just have like a little bakery or bar and you're on a space station and you make croissant, you know, it's kind of nice. <laughs> you meet people from everywhere. You're like, hey, which quadrant are you from? Do you want a croissant today? Like just <laughs> like a nice little space baker. Um By the way, no, no, no. It's not that I'm like speechless. I'm just like, wow, what an interesting dream. Like I wanted to be a Broadway actress. Unfortunately, that, you know, I didn't really live into that fruition. But I wish I were cool enough that that was my dream to do that. I love that. Um, And so you ended up going and getting a degree in human rights and international security. Yeah, Um, that was that was far from the space baking. Yeah, the space baking route was not straightforward. Yeah. Was there was there a certain moment that you were that 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 (laughs) dream was crushed? Was there any any indicator that that wasn't going to be it? Uh, No, I'm just really bad at cooking. Right. That's totally I totally you're in safe. You're in a safe space. for that. Yeah, I am just so bad at it. Well, it's good because the things you're good at, we really need right now, which is like fighting really bad guys online. Um, so you ended up getting a degree in human rights and international security. And you ended up going to, to DARPA eventually. Can you tell us a little bit about your work there? Yeah, I mean, that was a long time ago. It was it's interesting. It was a project that I was working on at the end of my grad studies. Mm-hmm. And it was just looking at uh, privacy and security. So I had a um, <laughs> fairly conservative cybersecurity professor at Columbia mm-hmm. uh, who who called me a hippie. And I told them, you know, I'm I'm really not mm-hmm. a very radical hippie. And what I'm telling you about digital rights, I really don't think it's very radical. I think it's just really something that needs to be heard and discussed. And I was telling him, like, you know, I, I'm really concerned by the growing gap between national security discussions on one end and, and what I consider to be important digital rights and, and human rights security discussion on the other hand. And, and I think more should be done to bring digital rights, to bring human rights at, at the core of how we discuss cybersecurity. What, is um, that, what does that mean? Can you explain that a little bit? You know, privacy. Privacy is a good example, right? So you had a lot of conversations on what do we need to secure the internet from bad guys? And none of these conversations, it was back back then, right? I think we're in a much better place now, but few of these conversations consider that privacy was a very important element of that, right? Mm. It was, I think, back at a time where most people considered that there was a tension between privacy and security. Honestly, I think we've done a long way since then. And today, I think there's a recognition that privacy and security go hand in hand, right? If you have a system, you know, that leaks out private information on people, that also is a system that's easier for hacker to exploit. Mm -hmm. And so I was, you know, working on these these topics and my professor was like, okay, fine, we'll, we'll, you know, I know a project that could use a hippie and then you'll just get to work on this project as a student. So, yeah, that was fun. 
We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. But when we come back, Camille talks about her work on the front lines of terrorism online and how ISIS was actually really good at micro-targeting. Also, if you like what you're hearing, make sure you hit subscribe to First Contact in your podcast app so you don't miss another episode. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you also worked at Google and specifically Jigsaw, right? Which is, for folks who don't know, is kind of the, I think is really an interesting part of the company, which is where a lot of this technology, humanity, this like think tank of sorts, where a lot of these hard problems like AI and bias and some of these efforts to counter extremism, a lot Mm -hmm. of the people who are working on these problems are in that realm. And you were kind of at the forefront of that. So what did you find there? Yeah, it was um, it was really fun uh, working on on these issues. Um, By the way, I love that you say it's fun. Like you work on like counter extremism. So like you're like probably spending lots of time looking at ISIS recruiting videos. 
Yeah, but you work on these issues with people who really care about solving them mm -hmm. and who are keenly aware of the different trade-offs. And that, I think, is a very fortunate position. Working inside Google on these issues also meant like working on an organization who really wanted to get to the bottom of it and with colleagues at Jigsaw, but also, you know, frankly, all across Google in engineering and policy who wanted to make a dent in the problem, who were willing to experiment with creative and innovative ideas, but who also had a very clear picture of the trade-offs, of the constraints, of making sure that we don't go on the other side of the line, making sure that we protect freedom of expression as we think through these problems. So yeah, it's a, it's a privileged position to work on these issues for what sure. What were some of the, um, I mean, you worked on a research program to counter online propaganda. So like what, like, can you tell me like, what were the issues that you saw? Like, what did you kind of come up with? Yeah, so it's a program that was called the Redirect Method. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what what I was very interested in when we started, um, you know, thinking through this project is a lot of people think about, OK, terrorist propaganda, you have to just remove the content. That's a great first step, right? Indeed, there's content that's harmful, sometimes illegal. It shouldn't be online. And so you work to detect it and you work to take it down. But it doesn't, you know, solve the problem that you still have issues with the questions, right? Like there's still users who are coming to your platforms and they're saying like, well, I'm here to consume, you know, a piece of content that you've removed. And this is where the redirect method operated, right? Like when you have users who come and who are looking for content that is no longer there, do you still have an opportunity to reach out to them and to propose something else? Now, mm -hmm. You don't want to trick them into something else, right? So you really do want to redirect and propose, hey, here is a playlist of alternative content that we think might be interesting. And so you want to find um, you want to find the most transparent way to do that. And you want to find the most sort of clever uh, way to, to, to do that. Again, avoiding all the all the potential traps right. that, that are that are all around this this question. I mean, it was such I remember covering it and thinking this is such an interesting idea. Like I didn't realize that you were behind that. It really was, you know, teamwork from a lot of researchers who, as you said, like were really close to the question, right? The idea was we had to sit with people and really understand when you end up in a rabbit hole of consuming terrorist propaganda, what led you there? Right. Well, by the way, I don't think people understand. Maybe this is me having done a documentary on like someone from ISIS who was was killed in a drone strike. He was kind of a hacker type. And um, one of the things I, he was actually in charge of their social media. His name was Junaid Hussein, AKA Trick. Maybe you've heard of him, yeah. but like, I remember um, he was in charge of their propaganda stuff. And I remember like thinking like, oh my God, like he's making, this is going to sound really weird to say, we might have to cut it. <laughs> like <laughs> he makes ISIS look very human, but he makes ISIS out to be like punk rock. Like, mm -hmm. you know, these or like these rap videos and like these videos that are so compelling. And so I'm sure, you know, and, and I'm very human. So when vulnerable yeah. people are going to, to you know, look at these videos like and, and this is where I think the human thing comes in. Yeah. It's like we all sit here and we think like these people are crazy. They're going to join ISIS or these people are crazy. They're Russian trolls or whatever it is. But there's like a lot of humanity behind how people end up getting into to these spaces, right? And it's so much more subtle than yeah. what we make it up to be. Yeah. You know, who, you know, you know who was really, really good at micro targeting though? Who? ISIS. In what sense? 
Well, what's really interesting is we tend to think that terrorist propaganda is just one big thing, where it's like one bucket of very clear graphic imagery. Hmm. But what we're observing actually is tailored narrative targeted at very specific community, very specific people, right? right. It was, you don't convince a young British girl the same way than you convince, uh, you know, a, a, a Chinese Muslim yeah. uh, and online. It's just it's a much more nuanced and subtle and micro-targeted picture that, that we often imagine. And so you left and joined Graphica, and then your first assignment seemed like a pretty significant one, right? You were <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> involved in like a super secret project for the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Can you just like give us the, like, don't give us the company line. Like, tell me, like, they came to you. What did they say? Like, what what was the, the mission? You know, at that stage, I had been working on Russian interference for um, for a little while already. And mm-hmm. so I was I was already pretty, you know, pretty obsessed with it. And I remember, actually, when my boss called me, so the CEO of Graphica called me and said, like, hey, Cam, what if, like, we had all the data from, you know, everything that the, the Russians have been doing across platforms and, and we could really in- entangle and understand what's going on. Like, wouldn't that be great? And I was kind of like, what's up with John? <laughs> like, is he okay? And I was like, yeah, John, that would be great. Just give me the magic data box. That'll mm-hmm. be just super great. Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, well, I think we're going to do that. And I was like, what? <laughs> wow. And yeah, that was basically the assignment. Uh, the Senate Select Intelligence Committee really wanted to get to the bottom of what had happened. And I think we don't often recognize how little we knew then. And we still have gaps in our understanding of how really this campaign unfolded in 2016, but also before and after. And so it was extraordinarily exciting to be able to help the Senate, who had gathered all this data and really gave it to us with total free reign, right? They said, tell us what you see. I think my first instinct was, you know, again, as I said, like at this stage, I had all this already sort of in my heart and my head. And so I was already looking for for bits and pieces and, and it was IRA data. And so I remember the first thing we did is I was like, oh, well, here are the things I expected to see in that data and that are not there. And so it taught us very quickly that the IRA, the Internet Research Agency, the troll farm that's based in St. Petersburg, was one part of the problem, but it was not the full campaign. And so I knew of other campaigns. Later, we realized they were the GRU campaigns, right, who were lacking in the data set. And so it's been like this for seven months before the report got public. And then again, after and after, and honestly, it's, you know, it's continuing to be an endeavor, uh, a puzzle of having to figure out what really happened, what were the different entities involved in this campaign? How did the targeting take place? What is the exact relationship between the hacking and the trolling and the targeting? How did the platforms respond? And um, even more fun, how did the Russian trolls respond to the platforms responding? Hmm. And so we had all of that in sort of millions and millions of data points. So what does that mean? Like millions and millions of data points? Like how are you, you do a whole analysis around it or like, yeah, so we, we wrote this um, really long, you know, report and we tried mm-hmm. to, uh, 
talk about the the big trends and everything we observed and the role of the different platforms and how long this had been going on. I think uh, the few trends that we really tried to highlight was this was not just a campaign against the U.S. It was a campaign that had been waged against a Russian domestic population first, right, against uh, other populations in, in Eastern Europe and also a little bit in Canada and in Germany. And similarly, I think people were very focused on 2016 and we were able to demonstrate that it had been happening before, right? So Project LACTA, the big uh, uh, US-focused project of the IRA actually started in 2014. And in those those two years before the election, there was a lot of uh, fascinating detail of the, you know, the Russians really learning to uh, to play the Americans, right? Like, what are the hot button issues? Like, mm. what are the triggers? What can we try? And so we also looked at those two years of experimentation in which really they're bizarre cases, right? There's a... Like what? Oh, I think in 2015, around Thanksgiving, the Russians are trying to freak out everyone, telling people that the turkeys they would buy at Walmart will have salmonella. What? Yeah. They do that. <laughs> so it's just like a bunch of weird, you know, bizarre What else? Things. Let's keep going. Like, this is like weird. food hoaxes that are fun. There's, of course, um, a famous case called Colombian Chemicals. That's mm -hmm. even before. That one is... 2014. It targets a small community in Louisiana. This one's interesting because it involves SMS. And so they're telling people, releasing video, texting officials saying a chemical plant has exploded and they're trying to create a panic. It works to some extent as in like, you know, it's reported a bit and then the, the message circulates. But very quickly, the local authorities say, actually, that that's a hoax and it's not true. And they, they kind of move on, which to be honest, you know, <laughs> I understand. I think in 2014, in Louisiana, if you were to have said it's a hoax and we think it's a Russian troll farm, I think you would have sounded insane to anyone right. around you. You know, but they did things like this for, for at least two years before the election. And of course, they continued targeting the, the American public after the election, right? So 2017 is a really interesting year, too, because people are talking about Russian trolls in 2017, right? It's a new reality. And so the Russian trolls themselves are making jokes about it, right? So you have fake profiles that start making messages saying, oh, I'm reading all these stories about Russian trolls. It is ridiculous. Next time I'll be accused of being a Russian trolls. Ha ha ha, right? <laughs> so they kind of like adapted to the Absolutely. narrative of the Russian troll. Absolutely. And then they start adapting to platforms responding to this activity. I worked a lot on the part of that activity that targeted Black American activists in the U.S., mm -hmm. And a part of this effort was to create fake activist organizations and to work with real activists on the ground to do events together and and to really sort of like, you know, immerse themselves in, in that community. And there was a specific group called Black uh, Matters U.S. And when Facebook determined that Black Matters U.S. was a fake group and was a Russian entity, they removed it from the platform. But they didn't coordinate with the rest of the industry. And so mm. what really happened is the group went to Twitter and oh. started complaining about having been kicked out of Facebook, saying, we're really upset that Facebook supports white supremacists. And then they started going on Google and they bought a lot of ads to redirect people to their new websites because they had to direct the traffic away from Facebook because they had been kicked out. And so 2017 is this like 
really sort of, you know, surreal year for the Russian trolls where they're playing cat and mouse with the industry who still doesn't fully have, you know, their mechanisms well Mm. set and doesn't really have their policies well set either. So it's kind of a chaos and confusion for everyone. And then the Russian trolls start talking about Russian trolling. So it gets a bit meta. And then, of course, in 2018, they're the midterms. In 2019, they were also showing a different... It's just like kind of a... I think what's interesting from my perspective is people often think that the Russian campaign is one year and one thing. I've seen it evolve over so many years and show so many different facets. Yeah. Do you, when you interact with these people out of curiosity, like, do you just sit and watch them from afar? Do you go, do you have like an undercover (laughs) name or something where you're talking to Russian trolls as someone else? Like, what's your deal? So I have uh, talked to a few people who have worked in troll factories, mm-hmm. Russia and Russian and others. It's funny that you mentioned undercover. That's not the type of work I do. But one of the reasons we know so much about specifically the, the Russian Internet Research Agency is because a young Russian journalist went undercover mm-hmm. and published everything she could find. And she did that quite early. I think mm-hmm. what's it's interesting. It's an interesting reminder that that honestly, the the activist communities and the investigative journalist community knew about this and really went through great pains to document it before the rest of the world in Silicon Valley really cared about it. You said um, as something that I thought was really interesting. You said this work is two parts technology and one part sociology. Yeah. What did you mean by that? A lot of that is really about understanding socio-technical systems, right? So when you think about information operation, it's not really like hacking, right? It's it's not looking for a technical vulnerability. It's looking for a social vulnerability. It's looking for what's going to play uh, well into society's division. What's going to fall in between two rules that a platform has and that the, that's going to make them not catch me, right? A lot of this is really playing with social systems as much as it is playing with technical systems. Speaking of the humanity of it, you talk about kind of bringing a hacker mindset to the data security problem. And like what I think is so interesting about you is, I mean, you wouldn't like talk to trolls, right? Like we have this whole misconception. Who who are these people who are doing this? Like in America, we're like, oh, the Russians are trying to mess with democracy. And um, you actually uh, maybe this is just me selfishly as like a journalist who like loves to talk to the other Mm -hmm. side and like loves to talk to the dark corners where people aren't looking uh, and hear the other side you did that, right? Like, take me into that. So you actually found people who were working in Russian troll farms and, and talked to them? Not not just Russians. I think I've, um, I was always very interested and I think I've, you know, brought that mindset to my work. I was really interested in, in understanding more from the other's perspective, right? So yeah, I talked to trolls and, and hackers who uh, made a living doing uh, disinformation, and propaganda for hire. But like, take and, me into the rabbit hole. How does one decide <laughs> to do that? Like, are you sitting at your desk and you go to these places? How do you even get in touch with these people? Like, And again, it's so different. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, as a journalist, you get that, right? Like, totally. every story is really different. Well, that's why I know it's really um, probably challenging. So you've got, this is why I'm kind of sitting here being like, props, like, how do you, yeah. like, give it, give me some specific examples. Like, who, are there any people that really stick out to you that you spoke to that just surprised you from I from mean, they're all fascinating stories. Uh, I have to say, I've heard so many different stories that I would be, I, I would really struggle to, to paint it with one brush. Um mm-hmm. Things that come to mind is I've talked to a hacker 
who did uh, propaganda for hire all across Latin America. And that was way before uh, people were worried about Russian troll farms. You know, it was more, yeah, the entire disinformation for hire trolls and bots and fake profiles in Latin American politics. That was quite fascinating. I've talked to people in who, what sense, like did you like why they do it? Just for money, it just might helps them win an election, right? Like right. it's just like a was a, it patriotism? Was it just money? Like it's a, yeah. Like why do people work on political campaigns? Right. right. That was that was his shtick. Yeah. It's like you know, you're assembling a political campaign. You're right. getting a communications specialist. Do you want this guy who can bring you a little army of fake profiles and bots and trolls? Right. He kind of like made a niche for himself like that pretty successful until it ended sort of badly because he got caught and ended up in jail that's like a oh yeah that's like one story mm-hmm. um it, it's interesting because the, the campaigning angle came a few times right so talking to people who went into doing digital campaigning and really by by patriotism to support their candidates right and slowly saw the campaign apparatus evolve into like a state propaganda machine after their candidate became in power. And so there are a few, you know, a few stories like this of people who said, initially I joined because I wanted to do campaign messaging for, you know, for my candidate to win. And then I woke up and and I was just sending rape threats to women journalists using fake accounts and wondered what, you know, what happened? What am I doing wow. there? Someone said that to you. Yeah. Wow, what did they say? They were just just that, you know, like that that it that it slipped, uh, and that they went in for one thing, and that with the success of the candidate and the evolution of of the the machinery, they ended up just really doing something else. Where can you give any details around the candidate that this person like it was this? In that a... was a story that happened in India. Wow. Um, but but again, like I I've heard that a few times, and and I think that the story of of doing something for political reasons that ends up sort of like putting you in the middle of a machinery that's no longer what you uh, had had joined is is one that that's uh, more common than what we think. There's also been other researchers who've done great ethnographic fieldwork talking to trolls. Someone, you know, specifically who comes to mind is as a friend who wrote a report called The Architecture of Disinformation that looks at what happens in the Philippines. Mm. And it's a really fantastic report. And he's talking to people who self-identify as doing this activity. They don't say trolls, right? They don't say I'm a troll, but they say, yeah, you know, I make my living by having a lot of uh, fake profiles. And if you're a candidate and you want to pay me for this activity, I will uh, I will do that. Hmm. And um, and I think in in his work, what you see come through is a. is a question on when did that become an illegitimate activity, right? Like there's indeed a real business of people who do this for hire right. and who suddenly are told like you're a troll and you're going to be deactivated and i think i think part you know part of what you hear when you talk to the people on the other side is okay wait a minute because i've been doing that for a little while and i thought it was okay right <laughs> yeah i was you know um did you ever like find yourself really liking these people that yeah you, talk to? you know it got you got empathy for, for and again like such different trajectories right like you have empathy for someone who works for a candidate and suddenly says, like, what am I doing here? Yeah. You, yeah. Did you ever learn about how they learned how to pose as American? 
Like, what's the secret yeah, sauce? Really fun. <laughs> like, what is the secret sauce to posing as an American these days yeah. online? I mean, <laughs> I'm sure it's changed over the last couple of years, and it might not be rocket science, but um, no, actually, it's fairly complicated. So we know a lot about how the IRA learned how to pose as an American, right? Mm -hmm. And as I said, like, this is where the early days of the IRA are really fun because this is when they have to learn, right? This is why mm -hmm. they're playing around with like, oh, how much can we freak people out by uh, talking salmonella and turkeys around Thanksgiving, right? Like, this is them trying right. to figure out, like, where are America's hot buttons. We know that we're watching House of Cards, which I still think is hilarious. They were watching House yeah. of Cards. Okay. <laughs> how do you know that? They, they would uh, just tell in, you this? It's in, uh, it's in a, a defector testimony. <laughs> um, but really, here, at the the legal indictment have a lot of, of sort of like crazy details on everything that the IRA did to, to mm. sort of like learn to be American, right? So we know they took field trip. Um, this part of how some of the employees ended up being indicted was they entered the country with uh, tourist visas. And I think mm -hmm. a few years after, the government was like, I don't think you were here for tourism. So it's we like a troll farm field yeah, trip to exactly. America. It's a troll farm field trip. I wonder what so they, they did on their field trip. trip. You, you, know, um, you know, you'll observe people. You understand how, how, they, um, hmm. how they act, what they talk about. They were also looking at their social media metrics very closely, right? So whenever they were trying out a new post in a group, they would take notes on what's performing, what's not performing. They were talking about how to target specific groups and other groups. And of course, I think the thing that we tend to forget is they were also targeting Americans, right? They were talking to Americans. Mm -hmm. They were using their fake personas to have long dialogues with American activists on all sides of the spectrum saying, hey, what do you think about? What does the community think about? How are we going to do an event together? Yeah. And so honestly, they were doing serious research. We've got to take another quick break, but when we come back, it's not just Russia using sketchy social media tactics. Could American political candidates be using fake accounts to win your vote? And if you have questions about the show, comments, honestly, anything, you can text me on my new community number, 917-540-3410. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she? as my father believed, a witch. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Did you ever uh, worry, just because I know you're kind of in these dark corners of like, you know, dealing with troll farms or the GRU, like, I mean, also like real, like well-funded governments who are trying to influence outcomes in some of these very dangerous ways. Did you ever worry, maybe this is an extreme question, but about your safety? Yeah, that comes to mind. Um, comes to mind. Yeah, of course. I, you know, tried to... Uh be as safe as, as I can. I also don't worry about it too much because I also work with a lot of people who are, I mean, it's it's not a race, but, you know, thinking about people who are at much greater personal risk, it also helps both prioritize and, and put some relativity on it. What does that mean? Um, so someone I've worked really closely with uh, um, along the years on, on, on these questions is, for instance, the amazing uh, Mary Ressa, who mm-hmm. is the executive director of Rappler in the Philippines and who's a fantastic journalist. Um, she's been arrested so many times. She's been targeted so harshly by her government that, you know, sure, sometimes I worry about my own safety, but I think more often than not, I worry about that of my friends a bit more. Right. Yeah. So many of these disinformation campaigns, um, the idea is also to silence people. Yeah. And as women, I mean, I guess it's a lot of it is also silencing women and silencing female journalists and, and whatnot. It's, it's, you know, not silencing to is definitely a key goal. I'm glad that you're bringing this question because besides my own safety or that of my friends, I am really passionate about how do we build technology to protect users from very well-founded and well-resourced threats, right? And when you think about it, it's a very difficult problem, right? Like, how, what can you do when you know that a journalist is targeted by a nation state? There's a, a little known feature, I mean, outside of, of Security Circle, that's a feature that's really near and dear to my heart. It's called the state-sponsored warning. And I've been uh, working a lot on this and thinking a all about this. Sometimes when a platform knows that as a user you're being targeted, they would actually give you a little notification that says, mm. hey, we think you're being targeted by a state actor. Why don't you go and do this 10 things, right? Change your password, enable two-factor authentication, et cetera, et cetera. And I think a lot about how, 
how much we should, you know, celebrate in the, these systems. They're not much, but they're almost the only things that exist sometimes. And how much we should invest in making sure they're as strong and robust as possible. Yeah. Oh, and, and by the way, that is an ask. If you've ever received a state-sponsored warning in your inbox and you have thoughts about, like, your experience and want to talk about it, shoot me an email. I love to hear those stories. I mean, by the way, how, first of all, can we just take a step back? Like, how scary would it be if you're just, like, checking your email and you get, like, a state-sponsored war like warning? You know, it's really fun because I've talked to a lot of people over the years. And... <laughs> you're so strange. I mean, I think it's great. Like, I love that you talk about, like, doing taking on ISIS propaganda and you're like, this is fun. And you talk about someone getting a state-sponsored warning and you're like, this is so fun. I'm like, no, this you're is right. Horrifying. This is terrible. It is horrifying. Um, but but I, I, fun is not the right word. What I'm saying is what's really interesting is that people have such different reactions to it, right? But it's important, right? I would it's rather know. I would 100% want to know. It's extraordinarily important, which is why, like, I have met users who tell me, like yeah we received this but you know we think it's a drill we think that really platforms tell us that just to keep us on our tippy toes and i'm like no it's not a drill right <laughs> if you receive that warning please know this is not a drill you really do have to think about your security you really do have to enable two-factor authentication do those things right but you also have users frankly who um for whom it's been so terrifying and often sometimes so tragic that that this becomes um a symbol for them, right? So like people have very different reactions to it and and for some it, it really is sort of the you know the the beginning sign of a of a journey that can be quite quite horrifying and, and frightening and tragic. Yeah. As someone who spent a lot of time looking at influence in the twenty sixteen election, who just spends so much time, like what are we missing? I know I watched you on C-SPAN, you know, and, and research for this. I, I took some time and watched you testify. And I and I, I saw, in general, I just, I saw you talking about how the thing we're missing is it's not just the IRA. We're talking about the GRU and like, and how this is very well-funded government-backed campaigns. And we're not really talking about that. How also we're not even measuring like private messages of people being targeted. Like, you know, I, I just think there's so much talk about one thing right now. And my concern as someone who covers this kind of stuff is that we just don't even look at other things. Um, yeah. And we scream about the same things a lot, which is important, but we don't look at other things. So I thought those two things were really interesting, if you don't mind getting into them a little bit. And then, like, what's the other stuff that you think we should be talking about? Yeah. The first thing is, indeed, you know, we've talked so much about the IRA. And that's great. I mean, I say this as someone who's very deep, deep down this rabbit hole. I would mm. talk about the IRA day in and day out and for month and month without stopping. But it's not the only actor in foreign influence. And a lot of people, when they say foreign influence, really, you know, their mental model is what the IRA did in 2016, which, again, doesn't acknowledge that there were many other actors Russian actors, right? So the GRU played an important part. There are other Russian entities who participate in foreign uh, interference and information operations. But of course, there is uh, non, you know, other other governments, right? So the first campaign by the Iranian regime targeting U.S. audiences, I think, starts in 2010, right? Their first mm -hmm. foreign interference on social media campaign. So a lot of this was happening also before we kind of like woke up to it. So there's a lot more actors than just the IRA and frankly, than just more Russia, both on the foreign side and also as, as we talked about, right, on the domestic side. That's one thing. And yes, as, as you said, I am worried that we still don't have the full picture of how that specific Russian campaign worked and that there's still a lot that's missing from the record. In working with activists who had been targeted, 
we looked at the messages that they received and we never talk about those messages, right? When we think about the Russian interference, we kind of feel like, yes, that's a bunch of tweets. You had to be a little bit out of the loop to retweet a Russian troll. This is not what happened, right? Some people were targeted personally and worked with uh, fake personas for month and month and organizing mm. events together and discussing political life. And I think we don't talk about that nearly enough. I think mm. we're still lacking important evidence from the record. And, you know, I've worked with activists who's, uh, whose messages have also disappeared, right? They only have their side of the story. So trying wow. to piece all of this together is still, I think, an important endeavor. What do you think is the biggest threat going into 2020? Ourselves. What do you mean? <laughs> you know, disinformation is really important. It is true that there's foreign interference, yeah. but um, it's been very odd to see the pendulum swing so hard. In 2015, when I was saying, I think there is such a thing as patriotic trolling, right? I think governments are actually doing these information operations on social media. I think there is such a thing as Russian trolling. It was kind of like, yeah, really? And now every time there's something, yeah. people see Russians on their beds everywhere, right? Like everything is disinformation. Everything is foreign interference. And I don't think that's helpful. Hmm. I mean, and what about, I mean, on the home front, I think like you said something really interesting in one of the testimony about kind of this gray area of campaigns. And I, you said, I think because of our lack of serious dialogue on what we're willing to accept on social media or not, we're going to find an increasing amount of gray area situations as we head into 2020. Candidates, parties, PR firms, like are we going to see troll farms from actual candidates? Are we yeah. allowed? Like, are, <laughs> what what's happening behind the scenes? Like, um, you know, it's like two different problems, right? The first one is people don't have a good grounding on what is normal campaigning. I give you a specific example. In the midterms in 2018, there was a candidate who uh, had his supporters install an app and the app would give you an auth token, access your account, and then will help all the supporters sort of like tweet the same campaign message at the same time. But, you know, you would still have to install it on your phone and you would have to give the token to the app, right? When that happened, people completely lost it being like, oh my God, look at these, these are the Russian trolls, they're back. All these messages are doing the same thing at the same time, they're bots. And it was really straightforward to see that it was not bots and it was not Russians and it was just right. people using a campaign app, right? Because we actually sort of lack, you know, serious grounding on what normal people do in the, in the course of a campaign, we're prompt to overreacting. And so there's a need for a debate on like, what is okay for a campaign to do? Is it okay for people to download an app and sort of give their account to their candidate? Is it okay to use fake accounts? Is it okay to automate some of that activity? And on the other side, because candidates and campaigns don't really talk about this, you do have a lot of terrible ideas that are floating around. I do see people who think it's a great idea to have a little troll farm set up for 2020 with a lot of fake accounts that are just going to, you know, help amplify this or uh, help drown that out. Like, do you think candidates now actually have like some candidates could actually have troll farms on, on their own now? Knowing what we know, do you think that there could actually be troll farms here in the United States for candidates? Yes. Any more details? <laughs> I'm worried that this is not a discussion that we're having with campaigns and parties and candidates. 
that being said, I think it's slowly heading in the right direction. I was very encouraged to see Elizabeth Warren's uh, disinformation plan that does say to my supporters and to my campaign, these are the things we won't do, right? It doesn't get deeply into the details, but I think we're going to need more of that. It's going Did to she be... say that they wouldn't do that? So we can pull up the details yeah. of the plan, but it has a section of it that addresses right. the type of behavior on social media that she discourages from her supporters. I don't think that it specifically talks about the use of fake accounts, which is interesting. Hmm. I think a lot of other concepts were kind of like misunderstood, right? Yeah. So bots is a is a traditionally misunderstood concept that leads to more complex discussion that people don't really want to have, right? It's like, what is the role of automation? What right. part of your activity can you actually automate? What part of it is legitimate automation? What part of it is undesirable automation? Um, yeah. Are you seeing, and maybe you can or can't get into details, but are you seeing like in the US, like are you seeing candidates or people associated with candidates have bots or troll farms or that kind of stuff? So far, I don't think that we've seen candidates and campaigns sort of like officially mm -hmm. do that. Right. What we have seen is, is a lot of people thinking it's a good idea to use fake profiles to do political mes messaging, right? Right. How much is that at the candidate's direction, at the campaign's, you know, sort of like... Right. Uh, I, I don't... I, I don't... I'm hoping that, that <laughs> we won't see more of that. But again, I think a little bit more of a clear discussion on the rules of the road in this area would be helpful. Um, I remember I interviewed Aza Raskin for this podcast, and he said he thought in the future... A threat could be, um, this is my maybe very black mirror, so just go with me and then pull <laughs> me back. But saying that in the future, a threat could be, you know, a bad actor taking, using AI, taking a combination of the faces of the five Facebook people you use the most, or you you talk to, you interact the mo with the most, and targeting you with a face that you automatically trust. Almost like you you just kind of trust this face because it's a face that you're almost more used to. Your brain just kind of registers it. Do you think we could see something like that? Yeah, I think the technology is already on the table for that, which is interesting. Um, we recently did a report. We called it FFS. I think for Fake Faces Swarm was the official name. Mm -hmm. And it was a really interesting report because it looked at a very large campaign of fake profiles that use generative adversarial networks, which, you know, basically like AI to create fake faces from scratch. And so all these profiles had this fake faces that were generated by AI. And we realized, wow, this is something that we really honestly thought was a little bit further down in our future that we're just seeing there. But on the other hand, the technology was there. It's very easy to do. It's available to anyone. It was honestly on this one, I think it was harder to detect than to make. There's still sort of telltale signs, right? So something that was interesting is when you create, um, or at least with that generation of generative adversarial networks, the symmetry of the faces hmm. was often uh, wrong, right? So if you would have an earring on your left ear, the matching earring on the right would actually like not match at all, right? So if, if you had a face wearing glasses, the left branch would kind of be off if you compare it to the left branch, to the right one. So like there were, there were telltale signs like this, but still I think we're with a lot of the AI technologies to generate these types of outputs, still it, it is still the case that it's easier to generate them than to detect them. People argue that privacy is kind of a blurry concept. They say, <laughs> I have nothing to hide. What do you say? Ah, there's an entire book to be written about that. <laughs> um, yeah, that's not the point of privacy. What is the point? 
the point of privacy is the preservation of, of society and intellectual independence, right? You don't have to have something to hide. You deserve your privacy. And uh, no, it's it's a fundamental value in democracy. Hmm. Kind of this next threat you talk about a little bit is not just deep fakes. Could you just take us to the, the idea it's read fakes? It's, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, people think about deep fakes a lot, right? So the ability for machine learning to generate a video from scratch of an event that never happened with a limited uh, training data set. Um, I think that's that's important and interesting. I also worry a lot about how that plays out in the text space, right? So there are uh, a series of uh, classifiers and GPT-2 is one of them and, and tools today who enable you to take a short training sample and to generate a lot of believable text uh, based on that. And I worry a lot about how that does to the disinformation ecosystem, right? Because mm. when you've spent a bit of time studying uh, troll farms and disinformation operations, they often have to produce a large amount of engaging and believable text, right? To sort of like put out on, on a various set of properties or online accounts or domains and, you know, fake fake profiles. And so I, I, I do worry a lot about that specific threat, which I, you know, jokingly called the, the read fakes. Hmm. Um, how would it play out? Like, how do you see it playing out? Well, if you run, for instance, a disinformation ecosystem where you have 200 sites that you're pretending have nothing to do with one another, it becomes much cheap, cheaper and easier for you to keep 200 sites sort of hydrated with fresh content. Right. Yeah. Um, I have a, a wonderful partner who um, is a bit cheeky and he teaches kids to use sort of like deep fakes and, and read fakes and all that. And... I think that's actually sort of a good response. I think people should should play with those tools and sort of understand what they can do, what they cannot do, and have sort of a lot more familiarity with these techniques so that mm. they can more easily spot them. Um, last question. You said you're an optimist, or at least in your Twitter bio, it says you're an optimist <laughs> mind focused on dark patterns. Why, despite everything you've seen, are you so optimistic? Because people are great. What makes you, I mean, I guess I don't know if I have a follow-up to that. Um, why do you still think people are so great despite everything you've seen? Because I think that a lot of what needed to be uncovered was hard to uncover. I think people worked really hard to demonstrate that this phenomenon existed. I think people worked hard to say, look, there are such things as troll farm. This is how they work. I think people worked hard to say, yes, you know, activists are targeted and this is what's happening. And I think despite the problems growing in complexity and in size, there's always been fantastic people chasing them and exposing them and, you know, coming up with creative solutions. You work so closely with all the tech companies. So do you think they're well equipped to take on this next challenge? Well, I'm much better off than a few years ago, for sure. We've come we've come from far. You're still optimistic. I'm still optimistic. I mean, we are in a much better position, sort of like the tech industry in general, than when we were a few years ago. Still not perfect. Still a lot to do, both on like creating better roles, being better at implementing them, and creating technology to be able to do detection faster. But, but we're and in maybe a bringing more humans now. like you to the table. I would just say like adding in the the people who actually have uh, an understanding of humanity, because I think the thing that seems to keep going missing in the narrative is the human part. And maybe had we been paying attention a yeah. little bit more to the psychology of hacking and people and that kind of thing, we, you know, 
and there were maybe more people in these tech companies at the time, maybe that would have been something we could have caught a little bit earlier. More social scientists in tech, yeah. more diverse background in tech. You really can't go wrong with that recipe for sure. So what do you think? We hit on empathy, trolls, the dark corners of the internet, and a little bit of optimism. I would love to hear from you. Are you liking the episodes? What do you want to hear more of? I'm trying out this new community number, 917-540-3410. Text me. It goes directly to my phone. I promise I'm not just saying that. And here's a personal request. If you like the show, I want to hear from you. Leave us a review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Follow me. I'm at Lori Siegel on Twitter and Instagram. And the show is at First Contact Podcast on Instagram. On Twitter, we're at First Contact Pod. First Contact is a production of Dot 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 Media, executive produced by Lori Siegel and Derek Dodge. This episode was produced and edited by Sabine Jansen and Jack Regan. Original theme music by Xander Singh. First Contact with Lori Siegel is a production of Dot 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 Media and iHeartRadio. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts i used to have so many men how this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich men Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con Season 5 The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts Or wherever you get your podcasts <laughs> 